And welcome to Catholics Coast to Coast, your chance each week to really understand what's happening at Podcast Central, where you can take it with you wherever you go. Like, subscribe, and follow, so that way you don't miss what's to come. But again, EWTN.com slash podcast can get you what you need. And as we dive into this week's Word on the Word, it's really some great insights into the readings for this weekend's Mass. Are we talking about when Jesus drove the merchants and money changers out of the temple? Yep. According to John's gospel, he made a whip out of cords and overturned the tables. Wow, Jesus sounded pretty angry. But I thought anger was a sin. Actually, no. In Ephesians, St. Paul tells us that anger can be virtuous and is not necessarily a sin. Jesus righteously rebukes them because the temple is a place for worship, not financial profit. Oh. Isn't anger one of the seven deadly sins, though? It is. But anger is also an emotion that's morally neutral. So basically, it's not always a sin. From my understanding, anger becomes sinful when it's directed at someone who doesn't necessarily deserve it, or at least not all of it. Oh, I get it now. So what's our challenge? Well, that's a good time to talk about forgiveness, right? So this week, think about a time when you got really angry at someone. Have you forgiven that person for the offense? And if it's something particularly difficult, ask Jesus to transform your heart. And catch us next week right here on EWTN. Bye. Doodles. Better understanding of the readings during Lent and always great in the midst of our 40 days to have Word on the Word available anytime you need it. Just click on Podcast Central when you go to EWTN.com slash podcast. Easy to find. And this week, another reason for you to check it out is we've got two brand new podcasts to the family, the first of which is the Cardinal Newman Society. This is going to give us great conversations today as we share the five principles of Catholic identity and then the benchmarks of the church and how it expects the most out of every Catholic school. So let's dive right in. One of our newest, this is Cardinal Newman Society on this week's Catholics Coast to Coast. Welcome to the Cardinal Newman Society podcast. I am your host, Kevin Murphy. This podcast, as you know, is devoted to promoting and defending faithful Catholic education wherever it is found. In fact, the reason we launched the podcast is not only in celebration of our 30th anniversary at the Cardinal Newman Society, but more importantly, we launched this podcast in response to what Pope Benedict XVI called an educational emergency, the urgent task of educating and forming young people amidst the day's chaos and confusion. And I think we could all agree that we are certainly living in confusing times. Now, I want to read from the letter. It's a bit unconventional, but if I'm going to talk about Pope Benedict XVI's writing, it's better for you to hear it than it is for me to summarize it. That would do it a grave injustice. Now, I remind you, this letter was written 16 years ago in January of 2008. To give you a little context, the first iPhone was introduced the year previous to this letter. The very first one. What are we on now? iPhone 15, I believe. Instagram wasn't invented as a social communication channel. That didn't come about until 2010. And I share these two tools because the iPhone and Instagram are two communication tools that have had a dramatic impact, I believe, on education. 
Now, back in 2008, Pope Benedict XVI used the phrase educational emergency. Now, think about all that has transpired in our world, in our culture, since that letter. If it was an emergency, an educational emergency in 2008, goodness, what is it today? By the way, Pope Francis has continued using the phrase educational emergency in his writings as well. And so I'm going to read the first several paragraphs from this letter. It is from Pope Benedict to the faithful of the diocese in the city of Rome on the urgent task of educating young people. That's the title, if you'd like to look it up. I'm sure it's on the Vatican's website. Dear Faithful of Rome, I thought of addressing this letter to you in order to speak to you about a problem of which you yourselves are well aware and to which the various members of our church are applying themselves, the problem of education. We have all at heart the good of the people we love, especially our children, adolescents, and young people. Indeed, we know that it is on them that the future of our city depends, and I would say our church. Therefore, it is impossible not to be concerned about the formation of the new generations, about their ability to give their lives a direction and to discern good from evil, and about their health, not only physical, but also moral. Educating, however, has never been an easy task, and today seems to be becoming even more difficult. Parents, teachers, priests, and everyone who has direct educational responsibilities are well aware of this. Hence, there is a talk of a great educational emergency, confirmed by the failures we encounter all too often in our efforts to form sound people who can cooperate with others and give their own lives meaning. Thus, it is natural to think of laying the blame on the new generations as though children born today were different from those in the past. There's also talk of a generation gap, which certainly exists and is making itself felt, but is the effect rather than the cause of the failure to transmit certainties and values. Must we therefore blame today's adults for no longer being able to educate? There is certainly a strong temptation among both parents and teachers, as well as educators in general, to give up, since they run the risk of not even understanding what their role, or rather the mission entrusted to them, is. In fact, It is not only the personal responsibilities of adults or young people, which nonetheless exist and must not be concealed, that are called into question, but also a widespread atmosphere, a mindset, and form of culture which induce one to have doubt about the value of the human person, about the very meaning of truth and good, and ultimately about the goodness of life. I mean, Think about that. This was written in 2008. How much more, you know, accented is this type of writing? It's incredible. It then becomes difficult to pass on from one generation to the next something that is valid and certain, rules of conduct, credible objectives around which to build life itself. Dear brothers and sisters of Rome, at this point, I would like to say some very simple words to you. Do not be afraid. 
In fact, none of these difficulties is insurmountable. There are, as it were, the other side, I should say, they are, as it were, the other side of the coin of that great and precious gift, which is our freedom, with the opportunity that rightly goes with it. As opposed to what happens in the technical or financial fields where today's advances can be added to those of the past, no similar accumulation is possible in the area of people's formation and moral growth because the person's freedom is ever new. As a result, each person and each generation must make his own decision anew alone. That is a powerful statement. I want to just read it one more. As a result, each person and each generation must make his own decision anew alone. Not even the greatest values of the past can simply be inherited. They must be claimed by us and renewed through an often anguishing personal option. And the last paragraph. When the foundations are shaken, however, and essential certainties are lacking, the impelling need for those values once again makes itself felt. Thus today, the request for an education which is truly such is in fact increasing. Parents, anxious and often anguished about the future of their children, are asking for it. A great many teachers going through the sorrowful experience of their schools deteriorating are asking for it. Society overall, seeing doubts cast on the very foundations of coexistence, is asking for it. Children and young people themselves who do not want to be left to face life's challenges on their own are also asking for it in their inmost being. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, moreover, have a further and stronger reason for not being afraid. They know, in fact, that God does not abandon us, that his love reaches us wherever we are and just as we are in our wretchedness and weakness in order to offer us a new possibility of good. So what is it that parents often anguish are looking for. Teachers who experience in a deteriorating schools are asking for it. Society's asking for it. Children are asking for it. What is it? It is faithful Catholic education. Faithful Catholic education is truly on the rise. Right now, if you go to our website at cardinalnewmansociety.org, that's cardinal, N-E-W-M-A-N, society.org. There's a press release we shared about the growth of Newman Guide Colleges. Now, these are colleges following the church's teaching and not acquiescing to the culture. Many of these colleges are experiencing record enrollment for the very reasons Pope Benedict just shared. In 2023, the Cardinal Newman Society extended Newman Guide recommended status into the K-12 and graduate school markets. So now a family looking to make sure that their child experiences a seamless faithful Catholic education can go to the Cardinal Newman Society site and look and see which schools make it in the K through 12 
which schools make it in colleges, and which one make it as graduate programs. Which ones make it as graduate programs? That gives you a guide unlike any other guide today. I urge you, demand faithful Catholic education in your school or college. Ask them a very simple question. Are you Newman Guide recommended? Because even the greatest values, as Pope Benedict just said, cannot simply be inherited. They must be claimed through personal action. Please consider joining us in this quest for renewing faithful Catholic education and delivering what parents are asking for, students are asking for, and our society is begging for. Please consider joining us in our renewal of faithful Catholic education. Go to cardinalnewmansociety.org or call us at 703-367-0333. Today's guest is Dr. Dan Guernsey, a 30-year veteran of Catholic education. He's a senior fellow at the Cardinal Newman Society, and he's currently launching a new master's in Catholic educational leadership at Ave Maria University in Ave Maria, Florida, a Newman Guide recommended college, by the way. Dan, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Dan, first of all, when I see somebody with credentials like you, the first thing I want to do is thank them for 30 years of being in Catholic education. So thank you for that. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I also want to back up because a lot of people want to know, how does a person get into Catholic education? And then when they get into it, what is the path that led you to where you are today? So let's let's start with some simple questions, Dan. Did you grow up in a in a faithfully Catholic home? I grew up in California in the uh, 70s and 80s in a typical um, Catholic home in California during that time period. So the answer is no. We we did minimal practicing, but we did not have a robust um, or thoughtful faith life. Uh, I went to Catholic schools in California as well, which were also woefully um, insufficient in catechesis. <laughs> so uh, they did a nice job of teaching the heart, but not too much on teaching the mind or mm-hmm. really delving into the faith. So I had to wait to college before I actually encountered the richness of the Catholic faith. And that's when uh, the fire was enkindled. So you went to Catholic school K through 12? Uh, I went to, for high school. I went to Catholic school. But, okay. but again, it was it was the typical bad Catholic school environment that most people fear. Okay. (laughs) I went through, I went through the really bad stuff. You know, we never opened a Bible in four years. We were taught to uh, uh, hate Pope John Paul II. We were taught all sorts of dignity came in and and preached to us in our, in our classes. It was, it was pretty bad. Wow. Now, okay. So you get to college and where did you go to college? I went to the university of San Francisco. Originally, I wanted to be a a doctor and uh, work with the homeless. And um, I was in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so I went to the University of San Francisco and just happened to wander into um, Father Fessio's great books program by accident because he claimed he could get me into medical school. 
uh, if I went through his program. So I signed up and then that's when I was exposed to the glory of the Catholic faith and the beauty of the liberal arts and just a, a, how rich life truly is. And when that happened, I mean, what was your experience like? How did you, I mean, because you never had really understood it to that point or really been taught it well. All of a sudden you get exposed to it and Father Fessio, God bless him for that action, draws you into the program through a promise. I mean, how did that enlightenment occur? Um, I think it, it can be self-evident if, I mean, like I said, my, my high school did a good job at training the heart and keeping me open. And then when the truth was presented in its, in its clarity and beauty, it was, it was unavoidable. Uh, and so, you know, it didn't take long for me to realize that, wait a minute, I have not been given the, tr- the whole truth and I had not been exposed to things I should have been exposed to as a, as a young person. And so that's what inspired me to leave medicine, uh, the study of medicine and go into the, into the liberal arts. So I actually graduated as a English major and, because I saw the beauty of, of literature and what it could do to uncover man's experiences and, and our place in the world. And um, I saw the richness of the liberal arts. And so I said, the world needs this. Wow. As well as that. Yeah. Now, so you graduate and you have this degree and where do you go? I, I went to India. <laughs> that was that part of me that wanted to work with the whole. Of course, world. everybody gets a degree and goes to <laughs> India. So, Yeah. So that was the part of me that said, I want to keep working in this capacity. I want to go help people. So that is, um, that's what led me to India and then the Philippines as well for two years as I studied abroad or not studied abroad, but worked abroad in orphanages and with the poor. Uh, and then I came back to the United States, got my master's degree in literature from UC Berkeley and my teaching credential. And then that set me up. Set another me up another heavily, heavily Catholic institution, UC Berkeley, <laughs> right? Like I said, I'm at home. In the, I'm at home in the world. <laughs> so, what was your first job in Catholic education? I taught English and religion in inner city of Richmond, which is near Oakland. So it was kind of the uh, at a Catholic school in um, a very um, low socioeconomic status school. And and so now from that, Dan. Give us a little bit about the progression. You know, you, you're, you're, you're teaching. You mm-hmm. decided that with the faith that, that teaching was something that you wanted to go into and yes. you get that job in teaching. And then um, because I think this is the place that a lot of educators end up and then they become frustrated. Maybe maybe they have a job that isn't the greatest and they'll and they'll start to do something else. So yeah, I, I enjoyed my my jobs. I, I again, as a young man and a, a newly married man. Um, I, we had to switch schools and go to Fresno, a Catholic school in Fresno to follow my wife's job because she had to pay back her scholarship as a nurse to the VA. So that brought us to Fresno. So I enjoyed the work. Um, but then my, my, you know, my challenge as a, as a young person was I have a gift for, uh, administration as well. And, uh, with a growing family, those two things came together. And so I pursued my first graduate degree in, uh, in school administration. So that, that got me into then a, the, the, the life of a principal, uh, first in small town, Ohio, and then with uh, Tom Monahan's Ave Maria Foundation. Okay, so yeah, that's interesting. So you're, you had not met Tom at, at this point, right? And Correct. you were taking a job. When would, did that, give me I, the, give me the sequence for that. Yeah, that, that was, I started off in a small town in Ohio near where my wife is from. 
and I was a principal there for several years. And then, you know, we had a, a, one of those kind of crazy pastors that kind of, uh, you know, came of age in the 60s and liked to do strange things. And so eventually when he got assigned to our parish, I, w- I was unable to work for him. Um, you know, there was type of stuff like, you know, consecrating tortillas, store-bought tortillas at uh, school masses. Wow. And, yeah. you know, mm. The Eastern mysticism and all that stuff, it just didn't work. Um, so I was looking for something else. And then I ran in through uh, my spiritual director from the University of San Francisco, uh, uh, Tom Monahan, and his Catholic educational enterprises. So I joined him in 2000 to do whatever he needed done in Catholic education in 30 minutes or less. Wow. And And so tell me, though, Dan, at what point did you detect this idea of the of of faithful Catholic education versus what you were experiencing in, as you said, with your pastors and things like that, where you're all of a sudden exposed to this kind of more radicalized? And how did you stay the course on faithful Catholic education? Well, I knew the I, I knew the course. And uh, I actually had an opportunity to take a, a, a job at a Catholic high school, Marin Catholic, out in California at the same time I was discerning whether to go to or whether I was to go to Ave Maria. And I looked at Marin Catholic, which is an ideal school for me in many ways, but I knew that I didn't have the resources to turn that school around on my own. I was too young. The, the resources weren't there. I didn't know how to do it. So I, I went to Tom, the route with Tom. Uh, uh, in the hopes of also simultaneously pursuing a doctorate in uh, in leadership, educational leadership and education, so that I could help develop the resources that might be needed to assist in the turnaround of schools. So that is where I went that route is to, is to develop my own tools so that I could uh, fulfill that need. And over the years, while I was doing that, I came across with other groups and other groups started and began networking with them through the Ave Maria Foundation's groups like NAPSIS, eventually the uh, more recent Institute for Catholic Liberal Education, and uh, the Sisters of Mary were involved with Ave Maria, Mother Sister Mary, Mother of the Eucharist. So all these networks began for, forming, the resources started coming together. And then when Ave Maria started its uh, developments here in Florida, they wanted a school. And then I looked into, or was somebody recommended me looking into doing classical education. So I got into classical education and founded Ave Maria's classical K-12 school. Which is called? The Donahue Academy. There you go. <laughs> so right here in Ave Maria. And so you've been down at Ave Maria, Florida for how long now? Uh, about, yep, since um, 2004. Okay. Oh, quite a while. Yeah, 19. It, going, it's an absolutely going, fantastic place to live. Yeah, 19 yeah. years, average temperature 84 degrees. So that's always <laughs> a nice year round. I love um, it. So, so Dan, tell, tell me this, because one of the things that, that I think, as I, as I said, for support to those Catholic educators who find themselves in a similar predicament that you are in, and that is that you're finding yourselves being very much drawn to faithful Catholic education, and then you're running into these obstacles along the way. How do, how do you suggest that somebody deal with that? Because it can be very frustrating that you see a clear vision for how Catholic education can really infiltrate the culture and change the world, yeah. but you have all these obstacles in your way. I think um, a strong vision and, and life of prayer is, is, is what it's about. And 
I think that's essentially what we're trying to do at the Cardinal Newman. We didn't get to the point of how I got to Cardinal Newman, uh, which is after all these years of thinking and praying and doing schools and doing education and, and amassing these resources and these ideas about Catholic education, I was able to uh, be offered a position by uh, Patrick Riley with the Cardinal Newman Asso uh, Society about uh, a little over a decade ago to help develop these resources. And so that's what I've spent the last decade doing is actually really digging down deep and thinking, what do we need? What do principals need? What do teachers need? What does the church expect of us? How does this all come together? So uh, over the last decade with the Cardinal Newman, we've been thinking very deeply about this stuff, immersing ourselves in the, in the teaching of the church so that we can then go forward and assist schools. So it, it's part of that is, is, is the answer of how do you get through it? You join you start with a, a, a solid vision, you start with a solid faith life, and then you join networks of support. And so that, again, is one of the things the Cardinal Newman Society is doing is not just developing the resources, but now also expanding these networks of support, um, most clearly seen in what we do with our colleges. But now we're moving into the K-12 level, quick K-12 level as well. Yeah. So, Dan, you were instrumental coming here, as you said, almost a decade ago of taking the Cardinal Newman Society and expanding their reach into the K through 12. Now, last year we did something novel, and that is that we extended our Newman Guide recommendations into the K through 12 market. Right. Mm -hmm. So. There are these things called the principles of Catholic identity and education that you helped craft. Tell me why these are important for achieving Newman Guide recommended status. Well, they're important for that. But of course, even if a non-Newman school <laughs> would benefit from these uh, th these principles, because what they are is, is when we began our work at Cardinal Newman Society in Catholic education, um, it was at the time of the Common Core. And so we took an early lead in... Um, uh, raising concerns about the Common Core. And then what we quickly came to see was it wasn't enough just to point out where education was insufficient. We had to look towards what is sufficiency. What are we supposed to be doing? Not just what are we not supposed to be doing? So um, under, under uh, Patrick Riley's direction, uh, a group of us really spent some time digging deep into the church documents and guidance on education and tried to distill down what are the critical elements the church is asking of us. Because again, the idea is that it's not up to the school to determine what the mission of a Catholic school is. It's up to an individual school to determine how they embrace and, and bring about the mission in their particular context. So the church has a mission for, for her schools. And actually some will say that the churches are the mission. They don't have a mission. They're actually the church at work uh, doing its mission. So we looked at, at, at these and then came up with these principles. And other people have done this as well. Father um, Archbishop Miller uh, did this as well when, with his five marks of a Catholic school. And other, other scholars have done it. Um, but we wanted to make sure that we did it on our own with our own take. And so they're very, they're very similar um, articulations. But that's because the church is singing from one sheet of music about what it expects from its schools. Right. Right. And and what I want to do is I want to take each of these, okay, if we can, Dan, I want to take each of the five cool. principles of Catholic identity and education, and I want to just talk about them briefly. Sure. Because as I said, as you said, there there are they are similar uh, to what Archbishop Miller had uh, had previously done, but I also think there's some really beautiful, subtle nuances uh, that the Cardinal Newman Society offers uh, 
which which does differentiate a bit. Yes, so I think let's. We, I, yeah, I think we benefit from our um, experience with just all sorts of schools and and networking to to see how the church's guidance uh, get in flushed in the uh, Catholic schools that are that are doing their best under difficult circumstances. So yeah, so in, in general, the 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 five ideas are um, that the church that the schools are inspired by a divine mission. That's the first one that okay. we're we're out there evangelizing and bringing about God's kingdom, mm-hmm. and that we do this. The second principle has to do with uh, modeling Christian community, uh, and this is one of the things uh, which was really relevatory to us. I think as we were going to through the documents, is how much and how important community matters to the life of a Catholic school and to its mission. And then the third is is what was most. Uh, reasonable to most people is there's prayer and sacraments <laughs> right. present in the school. So there's images and things like that. Uh, the fourth is uh, integral formation, which is basically the uh, understanding that the human person is an integral mind, body, soul um, uh, 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 unit that that only comes in one way, only comes together in one united uh, person. And then the and then the last element, the fifth element, is imparting this Catholic worldview. This, this this framework for interpreting reality. So those are, in, in general, the five things that the schools are supposed to be doing. So, Dan, let's break those down, because, um, as I said, there's incredible depth, I think, with each one of these points. And, as I mentioned earlier, as we are extending ourselves into the K-12 through arena, by building up the reservoir of intellectual tools, if you will, we, we, we call them the tools for renewal, Mm-hmm. Um, that could be offered to anybody at any time. They can take a look at themselves and see where they are. These are critical, um, you know, uh, th- these five are probably the most critical for somebody moving more towards being Newman Guide recommended. So let's let's right. go through it. You said sure. the first one was inspired by divine mission. Now, the one thing I want to make sure we're doing is for those educators, we're making this translated into their common, you know, vernacular as well. So help me understand, what does that mean? By, to be inspired by a divine mission, what sure, does that mean? But, but sure, but first, first to your point about making it understandable to, uh, to busy educators, that is essentially what we are trying to do. We are working as boundary spanners between the church documents and the intellectual tradition mm. and the, and the work, uh, worker in the field who says, I get it, I'm on board, but, you know, get me the bullet points because I've got to go run a fire drill right. and the toilet's leaking and I've got an upset parent, but just help me. Um, get that's exactly, Dan, that's exactly why you're so critical in this thing, because <laughs> you've been there. When you say that, oh, yeah. you probably say that at a jest because you've done it, right? Oh, yes. Many, many years, many <laughs> years. It's a, it's a, it's a privilege. It's, it's like being a busy parent. You don't have time to necessarily read all the parts of Familiar's Consortium. <laughs> right. You might be able to do so on a retreat, but sometimes it's good just to have somebody remind you, hey, listen, here's, here's a couple of things to focus on. So this first one is actually the, you know, the most important. So what we're looking at in these, in these principles is it's not everything Catholic schools do, but it's the particular things that make a Catholic school different from a public school, from a charter school, from a private school, from a Lutheran school. It's what are these particular things that we can point to, that these are the things we ma- we need to make sure we do. So obviously this first one is that we have to remember that we're engaged in the divine mission. Mm-hmm. And what this focuses in is the divine mission, the great commission is mm-hmm. to go 
make disciples of all nations, teaching everything that, that Christ has commanded us. That's from the end of the Gospel of Matthew. So that's the Great Commission, and this is what the schools do. So again, the fundamental point being that we don't open up Catholic schools um, in order to, uh, because the public schools aren't good enough at academics or athletics or discipline. I mean, th that's not what we're doing. The, the, the reason the schools are open, opening is because it's it, we are compelled to by this command of Christ to make disciples of all nations. And schools are very privileged and helpful environments in which to form uh, Catholic young people and build Catholic culture. Now, we have to say up front, they're not the only environments. In fact, they're not the normal environment for building the church. The Catholic schools, as we see them today, have only been around for 150 years. So the vast majority of Catholic evangelization happens through the parish, through the community, through the family. So we're not trying to to overcome that with Catholic schools, but in the modern context, with the complexities of modern education, Catholic education is uniquely suited to move into the field of evangelization with this divine commission of, of uh, making disciples. So what we have to do is we have to make sure that we are communi uh, educational communities of evangelization. So that evangelization piece is what is missing. It's a central piece that's missing from so much of Catholic education today. We're going to take a quick break. In the meantime, listen to our friend, Dr. Tim Collins, president of Walsh University. You know, in large measure, what has happened in the domain of higher education is it's turned into a block of wood. They're all the same. And I think what the Cardinal Newman Society recognizes is actually in Catholic higher education, we are a block of Swiss cheese. We might be cut differently, we might emphasize different kinds of things, but essentially we're still cheese. And so maintaining that tradition, being faithful to what's worked, I tell people all the time, you know, during the French Revolution, it was probably a tough time in Catholic education. So far, I don't see Robespierre, I don't see guillotines in the streets at the 4th of July parade, but if we're faithful to what it was established for and how we do it, then I'm quite sure we're going to make it another 934 years. Nothing else has lasted that long. So Walsh University is particularly thankful to Cardinal Newman Society for what you do in helping us to maintain that tradition, that faithful, authentic tradition, as we prepare our students for their careers, for their life, and most importantly, for their life's purpose. When you think of the number of K through 12 schools out there, according to organizations, different data today, there's about 5,900 of them. So when you look at this, there's so many that people encounter that experience mission drift. Yeah. And, and even in Pope Benedict's writings, he sometimes reminds us that people have lost the vision for what their mission is in the first place. Right. Right. And so that's why I think this is so important, this divine mission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's but one of Pope, my favorite statements from Pope Benedict when he spoke to American Catholic educators was he said, first and foremost, every Catholic educational institution is a place to encounter the living God. Right. That's it. It says first and foremost, that's what our schools are supposed to be doing. That's why we're open in the first place. So basically, I mean, in a nutshell, what, what's ha what happened to many schools in the United States is that, um, you know, in, through the 20s to the 60s, uh, most Catholic ch 
children are going to Catholic schools and they were united typically to the parish and they were typically free and subsidized. But then that changed in the 60s due to a number of circumstances, not the least of which was um, Catholics being mainstreamed in the, into the culture uh, post John Kennedy. And uh, the schools were, the public schools were seen as less of a threat to the Catholic uh, well-being of children. And so, uh, and the suburbs were, were growing. And so Catholic families just drifted into the local public schools, which were relatively non-obnoxious at that point. And then the Catholic schools started to become expensive because they lost their clergy, uh, the religious uh, yes. sisters. And so then we were left with substandard Catholic schools, which were poorly funded and um, poorly set in their identity when the religious left. And then so what schools needed to do to survive was they needed to become more elite institutions. So that's when they said, we're going to be elite in sports. We're going to be elite in academics. We're going to be elite in discipline. Uh, and then that's going to help us market our schools so that we can stay afloat so that then hopefully we can then evangelize and do the other things. But the challenge is with that eliting, you know, this let's become a blue ribbon school type of thing. Then the mission gets watered down. And then the idea of becoming evangelical enterprises gets watered down because if we need to increase the tuition base and, and attract non-Catholics who can pay high tuition, then then not that we need to get rid of the mission, but maybe we just want to not mention that as much. And I think yes. where we're at right now at, at, at this, this stage in, in American history is that we've seen that. Now we have to go back to our identities to survive. It doesn't. It's not worth surviving without it. Yeah, Dan, that's that's well said because I think so many things. You just you 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 could obviously have been in this your entire life, so you're encapsulating history very quickly about the development of the Catholic Church and the obstacles that have been uh, have been encountered in Catholic education since say mid '60s or so, and. A lot of these institutions have wrestled with figuring out how they market themselves. It used to be enough to be open to be a Catholic school to be distinct. Then the Catholic schools seem to mimic or copy um, public institutions, and that still is the case today. Would wouldn't you agree? Yeah, yeah. There's a temptation to say we're going to prove we're better by out publicing the public schools. Right. This is what happened when the Common Core came on online. Is Catholic schools, you know, made a, a determination that because the Common Core was the wave of the future, that they were going to have to be better at it than the public schools. And that was a that was a mistake that that, that uh, Catholic education made, and Cardinal Newman Society was there to uh, remind the the, the the Catholic schools, we, no, we can do more. And that's when we came out with our Catholic curriculum standards to say, no, we don't, you know, we're not just following public school standards. We do more. There's more that we do, and our, our Catholic curriculum standards help point the direction towards that. So, but, 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 but to your point, we can't just, the goal here is not to mimic or be better public schools. The goal is to be evangelical educational communities. If we're not doing that, we're not being true to our mission. Whether you're a parent or educator, you can use these principles as a guide and inspiration for evaluating educational efforts in the Catholic schools. That is Cardinal Newman Society, available at Podcast Central when you go to EWTN.com slash podcast. I'm HBK. We're going to take a quick break, but when Catholics Coast to Coast returns, another new one to tell you about, Lily 
The Voice of Alice Von Hildebrand is actually a podcast giving us insights chapter by chapter of the book, The Art of Living Lily. We're going to talk about hope and the primary use of it through despair when we return with Catholics Coast to Coast. The destination for great Catholic audio programming is EWTN Podcast Central, featuring the best of EWTN radio, as well as faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates across the nation, all in one place, all free. If it's central to the faith, you can find it on EWTN Podcast Central. It's like podcast heaven. Visit EWTN.com slash radio slash podcast today. Welcome to Lily, the voice of Alice von Hildebrand. I'm John Henry Crosby, founder and president of the Hildebrand Project. Alice von Hildebrand, known as Lily to her friends, inspired audiences with her wit and wisdom in over 300 appearances on TV and radio. This podcast is a treasury of those archival recordings. This is the eighth episode in the series on Dietrich von Hildebrand's book, The Art of Living. In this conversation, Lily continues to discuss hope, especially the theme of hope as communion with God. Now, here's Lily. Well, to understand that despair is basically complete isolation. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't commit suicide in public. You know, usually yes. commit suicide you know, in a little dark corner all by yourself because you feel I'm totally cut off from humanity. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no one who cares for me. Now, man is made for communion. He is made for communion to such an extent that you, Gabriel Marcel defines the person as someone who is made for, to be with other mm-hmm. people. Now, this is what is totally eliminated in despair. Of course, what is the solution to despair? There's only one solution, and the solution is supernatural. And this is a virtue of hope. And there is no possibility of explaining hope if we eliminate God. Mm -hmm. And this goes too far, so far, that even atheists who sincerely hope in some way assume that God exists. Otherwise, there'd be no sense to hope. Now, in the country in which we live, hope is often confused with phenomena that have nothing to do with it. You know, I've known people who have such an optimistic nature, mm-hmm. you know, that they remind me of these little toys that I had when I was a child, you know, little dolls, and this lead in their feet. <laughs> and you throw them upside down and yeah. they immediately fall back on their feet because yes. obviously the lead is in it. Mm-hmm. So I know people that have such a bouncy, optimistic, well, yes, things are bad today, but I mean, just wait tomorrow. and. Uh, give Clinton a chance, you're going to see within a few months things are going to be better and so on and so on. Or, uh, you know, this shallow, superficial optimism, Mm -hmm. as if we were promised that the world is going to turn out to be a paradise if we introduce a few new laws and if you bring about a few new changes, you know, and therefore things are going to be fine. I mean, the illusion, for example, the war on poverty or the war on hunger, and just follow what I say, and within a few years, the world is going to be a paradise. The world is not going to be a paradise. Again, that that heresy of evolutionism, but there was a saying back in the 30s, I think during the Depression, 
every day in every way, the world is getting better and better. And just to say that, say that, and say that, and then it will happen. When I recall when I started teaching, that one of my students said to me, uh, we have progressed so much that very soon this earth is just going to be a heaven. And then I said to him, I said, what about death? And he said to me, oh, just wait another 50 years. Science is going to prevent men from dying. I said, this is truly going to be hell. My husband makes an extremely important distinction mm -hmm. in his analysis of virtue between a temperamental disposition, you know, which is simply mm -hmm. in your genes that you are born with. I mean, some people yes. are nervous, other people are uh, extremely calm and peaceful. Some people are choleric, some people are, are sanguine. You know, this is a disposition that you're born with and there's no doubt about the fact that my genes play some sort of a role. But because we are persons, we are called upon to transcend these limitations. And I mean, suppose that I were to say, well, I'm choleric by nature and therefore I'm perfectly legitimate to me to make fiends and sins and to go into tantrums. No, I have to work on my nature and with God's grace to purify and to transform my nature. This is my temperament, but this has nothing to do with virtue. Virtue is always a conscious spiritual response and implies an act of will. I cannot be virtuous in spite of myself. I have to respond to a value and to respond mm -hmm. properly with God's grace, strengthening my will. And this is why I say a will always, virtue always implies a free commitment, a free choice. Yes. You know, if someone is patient just simply because he has such a languid and lazy temperament, you know, there are people who push them there and they'll stay there, you push them on the other side, and they, they might be comfortable to live with, yes. but they're not virtuous. You see, when you take a St. Francis of Sales, who apparently was coloring by temperament, and became the most gentle of all sins that you can imagine. You see, because precisely he was using his free will supported by grace. Therefore, let us not make the primitive mistake, very, very widespread in this country, to believe that optimism, all oh, things are going to be fine, don't you worry, oh, of course, you are just a prophet of doom, and so on and so on. The situation of the world today is so grave that to my mind, only fools can have optimism. But as Christian, there's another answer. And this answer is radically and essentially different. Mm -hmm. And this is the virtue of hope. Now, this obviously implies a reference to God. It implies a reference to someone who is infinitely good, infinitely powerful, and loves us. This is the theological virtue of hope. It's directed towards God. It right. is super, yeah. you know, the three are faith, yes. hope, and, and charity. charity, and implies toward God. And I simply say there is absolutely no sense to believe that through optimism we're going to save the problem of the world. The world is very, very sick. But we should put our hope in God. Why? Not only because God is all-powerful, because suppose that God were all-powerful but did not love us, it would not guarantee that there's reason for us to hope. But we know that God is love. We have the immense, unique blessing as Christians to know that God became man to save us from eternal damnation. You know that he has reopened the gates of heaven for us. You know that he's giving us, through the church, his grace and his sacraments. 
And therefore, we know that ultimately, God wants so good and is going to use it, even in moments of difficulties, even in moments of despair, even in moments of darkness, even in moments of intense suffering. We have to believe, and this of course presupposes grace because our nature is not going to do it on its own, that all this has a meaning which is going to lead to our good if we keep trusting. I think it's important to note that, like you said, grace, because we can't tough it out. I mean, it, it's You know, that is a paradox of Christianity. You see, once again, you know, one mm -hmm. of these days, I'd like to give uh, uh, several shows on the paradoxes of Christianity. Because from one point of view, we are free and therefore responsible. From another point of view, our freedom is very limited. And unless we turn to God for help, we are not going to make it. Mm -hmm. You know, it is totally false to deny that we are free, and it's totally wrong to say that our freedom is illimited and we can do what we please, that we don't need grace in order yes. to be safe. You know, that was the heresy of Pelagius. Of Pelagius, yes. Isn't it true that um, it's possible that when people go through great trials and have many more than other people seem to have, at least their memory members, their family or friends, that their possibility for sanctity is much greater than those who have fewer trials? You see, obviously, this is how you, you see it in the light of God and simply say, God is sending me these trials for my sanctification. And therefore, I have to open my heart and my mind to him and simply say, I don't know why you're sending me these trials. They are way about my strength, but I trust that you're going to help me to carry them. Now, let me turn to another interesting paradox of Christianity. If you study Hinduism or Buddhism, or even certain Greek thinkers, you're going to see these people had a cyclical conception of time. Mm -hmm. In other words, time is like a wheel, and it keeps turning, and therefore there is what Nietzsche calls the eternal return. You know, in other words, you miss the boat now, but it keeps mm -hmm. going yes. back. And this is something that Plato develops in, uh, uh, in one of his dialogues when he speaks about punishments of sinners. And you find yourself in Hades, and let us see that I've murdered your father. And then I'm condemned to go through this wheel of existence for 3,000 years. Yes. And when I come back to you, either you can forgive me or to say, no, I will not forgive you. If you, a human being, do not forgive me, I have to start all over again. And then it continues. Yes. But somehow, because there's a recurrence of the same events, you can always say, there's always a chance that I'm going to escape. What is amazing about the Old and the New Testament, which is now the prevalent idea of time, is that it is linear. Exactly. There yes. is a past, mm -hmm. there is a present, and there is the human future. And then there is the eternity, which is above time, yes. obviously. Now, what is so remarkable about Christian life is that I keep a living relationship to the past. For example, if I have committed a sin, when I was 20 years of age, now that I'm an elderly person, I still should feel contrition for that sin and simply say, oh, it's past, it's over, I can forget all about it. If something beautiful happened in my life and I had a deep experience of grace, even though it is past, it is still kept and living in me. St. Benedict says every single day of the year, the monks should, should cry over their sins, even though they've been forgiven. So we still keep a relationship to the past, 
the only thing given to me now is the very brief moment of time which is called the present because as soon as I say this is present it's already yeah. passed yeah. and therefore you see the importance as my husband expressed so beautifully that every valid moment of the present is to be related to eternity and the moment it is related to eternity it is saved so to speak yeah. and then the future with the danger of escaping into the future but simultaneously, as Christian, I should be concerned about the future because I should, in front of God, plan my future. Now, the danger of this conception, and this is what many people are going to say, the moment you accept the linear conception of time, there's a moment when it is too late. This doesn't yes. exist in cyclical time. It's going yes. to come back. Just yes. wait, it's going to come back. And you know, this is a word that I've heard most with my students who were on the edge of despair. Had I met so-and-so, had I heard so-and-so a few years ago, I could have made it. No, it is too, too late. late yes. You know, that is the word of despair. And mm -hmm. this is a moment when you have two possibilities, either to give up in despair and to commit suicide, or to turn to God. You, the master of time, God created time, and God is above time, He is eternal. And to turn to Him, and to make the sort of generous, heroic act, yes, it is true indeed. Humanly speaking, it seems to be too late, but you are there and you love me. And in one single moment, a flash of a moment, you can help me and redeem me. Have mercy on me, O oh God, and help me. Yes. And in this very moment, you transcend time, in the very moment, you come in close contact with God, who is your Father. God is not an imaginary being. God is a person who is my father and loves me. Therefore say, well, my God, my father, save me. You know, and then obviously you abandon uh, despair and you turn to hope. Mm -hmm. yes. And hope is always supernatural. Hope is always transcend any human category. And even this is, we, we've got about Two minutes left, uh, Doctor, and last chapter here, last part, it says, love makes hope easier. What, is that? what were you mean by that? Well, because obviously, as long as my relationship to God remains purely abstract and intellectual, it's not going to have the same beautiful dynamism mm -hmm. that if I turn to God with an open heart, knowing that he's my Father, and responding to this loving Father with all my heart. See, I give you my heart. My heart is a sinful heart, my heart is a hard heart, but transform it with your love. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is why there's a, such a deep connection between hope, faith, hope, and charity. charity yes. But in heaven, faith and hope will no longer be necessary, right. but right. charity will blossom into all beauty. Mm -hmm. Reflections of hope in the context of communion, particularly communion with God. That is Lily, the voice of Alice von Hildebrand, which you can find available now in Podcast Central at EWTN.com slash podcast. And make sure you don't miss out on future episodes or go back and catch up on what you did miss. I'm Ace McKay. That's going to wrap up our time together this week. But remember to always let God define who you are. And I'll see you again on Catholics Coast to Coast. <laughs>